0: Father in heaven, now as we come to this, which is your word, I pray that you would open our minds to understand, our hearts to receive and to believe. Uh, Father, this is our life. Uh, I pray that we listen and live uh, worthy of it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy, in the New Testament, 1 Timothy. want to read just a couple of verses out of chapter 1, and then a couple of verses out of chapter 3. 1 Timothy, uh, chapter 1, please. Verses 1 and 2. Uh, Hear the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And then chapter 3 and verse 14. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nation, believed on in the world, taken up in Glory! Now, I want, if God will help us uh, over the next, I don't know how long, to take up this epistle, this letter of the Apostle Paul to this young man, Timothy. hope to take it up in, in the beginning today until we're done. Uh, and so, uh, um, I, 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 I don't know quite why. Uh, you know, I always give you these little apologies for why I choose what I choose to preach on, because I know it's important to us, but I don't know quite why other than, it's in the Bible so it meets that criteria secondly I haven't done it before I haven't preached through 1st Timothy and I was wondering why as I just printed out all the lists of things that I had preached on the last 20 plus years and, and, and I don't it doesn't bother me at all to go back to something we've already done because there's always new things and our congregation turns over and so forth and so on but um, but I realized I hadn't done 1st Timothy and I, I wondered why so I read it and then I realized why uh, there's a number of passages here that are quite difficult and uh I think in my younger, year, I was, younger years, I perhaps was wiser and just skipped it and said, I won't do that. Uh, and there's a few passages that I wonder how will even apply to us, uh, particularly in our context and so forth. But, but, but still, uh, there's something that's been drawing me here, I suspect, I think. And as I read First Timothy in these pastoral epistles, we call them pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, pastoral epistles because they're letters from Paul the Apostle to these two young pastors, Timothy and Titus. And he speaks to them about life in the church. And so, so I read them, I think, as a young man. I've been reading them each year at least for years and years. But I read them from the perspective of Timothy, I suppose. I think, how is it that we live and lead in the, in the church and, and now uh, I still do that, still read them from the perspective of Timothy to be taught on how to do that. But I, but I think increasingly perhaps it's an age thing that I, I see Paul's points from his perspective increasingly about his concerns for the church. Now what's interesting about reading a letter like this, you get a letter written from an apostle to a pastor, as someone in the context of the life of the church, you're kind of getting an insider's viewpoint. It's sort of like a player reading a book written to his coach, or, or, or like a patient reading a book written to his doctor, something like that. You're, you're getting that kind of perspective, and you're seeing it sort of from the inside out, if you will. Oh, oh what's the life of the church like as this apostle writes to this pastor who's overseeing the ministry and life of this church now Timothy is in Ephesus and you might remember that Paul met Timothy when Timothy was a young man. He's still a young man here, but very young. Paul met Timothy on Paul's second missionary journey. Paul, an apostle, we have it as we, as we see in these opening verses of 1 Timothy, an apostle, that is a messenger, one sent, and he's been sent by Christ Jesus, by the command of God. So we see the authority of the apostle here, that, that he comes as a messenger of Jesus. Uh, we, under, we remember, I think, Paul's conversion experience where Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and and, and saved him and commissioned him to this ministry and to to be a spokesman, if you will, to be an apostle uh, uh, a very special, if you will Calling Someone who uh, in those, this early church life was able to to speak and to write that which was authoritative for the whole church, not only for them, but for, for all of the, the life of the church throughout all of history. And so he writes this authoritatively, and so he listened to him. And he meets this young man, Timothy on what is called Paul's second missionary journey. As you read through the book of Acts and, and see how it is that the, that Paul ministered, you, you find various journeys that he was on. And in his second missionary journey, very early on in that particular journey, he was in a place called Lystra and he met this young man Timothy. His, his mom was Jewish, his dad was Greek, it appears as if however they, his mom and grandmother, even taught him the scripture from a young age and so so, so Paul meets Timothy as a good reputation, again, even as a young man. And so, so here he is, and, and, and Paul says, I want to take him along with me. And so Paul takes Timothy along with him, and, and as we read through the Scripture, we find that, that Paul uses Timothy often as a delegate. He sends him to various places to speak on Paul's behalf or to see what's going on in those locations and report back to Paul. But, but he sends him ultimately, he sends him, leaves him, if you will, in Ephesus at a point in time to, to oversee the church there in that community. you remember that Paul founded the church in Ephesus and it was founded uh, not unlike other places other churches where he founded uh, where there was was, a mini riot really took place because you see what was key in the city of Ephesus what one would notice if you went to that place at that time was something that was considered then as one of the seven wonders of the world. And it was a temple in the midst of the city of Ephesus, and it was the temple of... You could either say call it the Temple of Diana, the goddess, or Artemis. Diana's the Latin, uh, Artemis the Greek, but but this is goddess, and, and it was this huge, huge temple. It was upheld by over a hundred columns. So the renderings that we see today of it, if you looked it up online or looked it up actually in a book, if you have one of those left, uh, and 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 you and you looked it up in a book, and you would see this Temple of Diana or Artemis, and you would find the rendering of it. Uh, huge with these columns that held up this huge marble roof and that was this temple she was a fertility goddess and all of that I won't go all the details um, quite decadent but but the city of Ephesus was known as this place of of this great goddess Diana this great uh, goddess Artemis and when Paul was there, one of the things that took place was that this silversmith named Demetrius realized that if people believed what Paul was teaching, he, Demetrius, would be out of business because his business as a silversmith was making replicas idols really of this goddess diana and people would purchase that that's how he made his living in fact that's how a lot of people made their living off this whole temple and this whole temple um, life and and so he realized that if people would believe what paul was teaching about jesus they would think that this goddess diana these idols that he was making were no gods at all and so he then uh, proceeded to have the friends of paul not paul himself but the friends of paul arrested And, and 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 people in the city began to To turn out and a a great mob uh, came in the midst of the city. Uh, Cooler heads prevailed ultimately. The town clerk settled everyone down. But but, but, but still you can see the hostility there in the midst of, of Ephesus concerning the gospel. In fact after Paul left Ephesus he was so concerned about the church there that he called for the elders of Ephesus to meet him paul was in a place called Miletus it wasn't that uh, far from Ephesus and so he called the elders uh, from Ephesus to come and to meet him and we find this in acts in chapter 20 and here's just a bit of what he said to them uh, verse 28 of acts chapter 20 paul said to these elders of Ephesus he says pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the holy spirit made you overseers to care for the Church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I didn't cease night or day to admonish. Everyone with tears. And so Paul's aware of the danger in Ephesus. And to Paul, the danger in Ephesus are people coming not only from the outside, but from the inside of the church, speaking that which is untrue, speaking that which is false, leading people away. And so Paul alerted them. And so it shouldn't surprise us that as Paul writes to Timothy, this very one he calls his son or his child in the faith, showing the relationship between the two. Uh, he writes to Timothy, he says, Beware of these who are teaching that which isn't true. So, so Paul writes to him, he, he, he hopes, Paul does, we notice from chapter 3 and verse 14 that Paul really would like to visit Timothy. But, but you also get the impression he doesn't think he's going to be able to. At least not in the near future from this moment of writing. And so, so he, he, he says, uh, so, so he writes to him instead. So he says, verse 15, If I delay that if I'm unable to come to you, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. See, what, what, what Paul is writing to Timothy is, is how the church should be the church. How the church ought to behave or conduct itself as the church. Because so if we want to know how it is that we're to behave as church, this is a key place. Look, this isn't exhaustive. This doesn't tell us everything that we need to know. Obviously, it's just three pages or so. But it's key. It's crucial. It lays out how the church is, in fact, uh, to be the church, how we're to behave together. How we're to pray together. How we're to worship together. How we're, if we could import a word from Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, how we are to live life, if you will, together. How are we to pray together? How we to learn together? Who leads us? How do they lead? What are they owed? How, how do we relate together, rich and poor, men and women? How is it that we live this life together? How do we care for one another? How do we live lives of holiness? And how do we encourage one another on in that life to which? God calls us, who are we really? And what is our mission? And that's really what what Paul lays out here. That's why I jumped all the way to chapter 3 just to introduce all of this because it's in in these verses that Paul lays out his purpose for writing to Timothy. He says to him, as I just mentioned, he says that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. You see, when Paul teaches about how we're to conduct ourselves, he isn't here to give us um, his own views about that he isn't here to, to base that around Timothy's particular skills to say well Timothy this is what you're like so, so so this is what the church ought to be like he doesn't say well this is what the culture is like and so this is how you're to behave uh, importing from the culture and understand your life no, no no he says you're to behave as the church because of what the church is and what the church is to do you see Paul begins there he says this is what the church is and so This is how you're to behave. This is what the church is to do. Therefore, this is how you're to conduct yourself. It's based upon Paul's understanding, his authoritative understanding, because he's an apostle, uh, of the church. And so he lays down and he says, first, this, this church is the household of God. That is to say, it's, it's the family of God. And this is His household, God's, God's household. He's the head of it. He's the Father. He's the head of it. And so, He's the one, therefore, that should lay out how it is that we're to conduct ourselves. realize that in the midst of this household, as His people, graciously on His part, we have access to Him. He is our gracious provider. He is the one who makes provision for us of all that we need. He is our father. He is our head. Uh, we, we know too that, that he is the one who teaches us and trains us and even disciplines us. The Proverbs speaks to us of the right father who disciplines his own. And if one doesn't discipline one's children, then one isn't really one's really a father to that child. The author of Hebrews picks that up and, and applies it to the God that, that, that we, He disciplines us because, in fact, we are His children. So, so we know all of that in the context of, of, of this household. We have, we're accepted by God, not on the basis of our own merit or desert, but on the basis of His mercy and grace. Paul, above all, knew that. Notice in 1 Timothy chapter 1 how Paul describes his own life. Verse 12, he says, I thank Him Of whom I am the foremost, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, Paul says, acceptance into this household isn't because we deserve it. Because Paul says, look at my own life. You know, we have a tendency, as Christians over time, to sort of romanticize Paul and his life. We forget who he was. None of us would have wanted to know him prior to his conversion. I mean, he was a man who was a blasphemer of God, a persecutor of the church. He had people killed for believing in Jesus. And no doubt, even in this day, there were those who knew Paul and who had known people that he had killed and imprisoned because of their faith in Jesus. And so Paul is standing before everyone saying, Listen, I I, I can't promote myself here at all. (coughs) Acceptance in this household isn't based upon our merit, but it's based upon the mercy and the grace of God. So you might remember a couple of weeks ago when Rick was preaching from, the, from Luke chapter 15 on the parable of the lost coin and lost sheep. And he, he says, it's God who pursues us. It's God who finds us. It's God who rejoices when we're found. That's how we enter into this household of God. It's on God's initiative, God's work. And it's to His glory, not our own. And not only that, you see, once accepted by God on the basis of his mercy and grace in the context of this household, uh, we can't put on airs when anyone else is accepted by God on the same basis of mercy and grace. And so when Chad was preaching last Sunday about the parable of the prodigal son, and he was highlighting this elder brother who was upset because his prodigal brother had come back and his father had accepted him, none of us should, should even even think to be like that elder brother because how can we despise anyone else who's accepted by the Father when we've been accepted by the Father because it's all on the basis of His mercy and His grace therefore we can't not accept another who comes into this household by faith in Jesus as we have come so nothing should separate us from one another we are to accept as the scripture says one another is God in Christ Jesus has accepted us now has He accepted us not on the basis of our merit, but on the basis of His mercy and grace. So nothing should separate us from one another on an economic class or education or social background or culture or ethnicity or race. None of that. Because we're all here. We've all come exactly the same way. Oh, there's differences in, 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 in how that's taken place, but... Same rationale, same reason, all by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. But not only that. As the household of God were actually His dwelling place, His house. So it made great sense to any who came from a Jewish background. They, they would have known that. The very dwelling place of God among people. Back in the Old Testament, God said, I want you to build me a tent, a tabernacle, and I'll dwell there among you, and it was interesting when when they had this tabernacle in ancient Israel and they were traveling around, that when they would stop, the tabernacle would be in the very center of all of the tribes, and they would position themselves around it, God in the very center of his of his people, to dwell among them, to live among them. When, when the temple was built, it was a, a permanent place in Jerusalem, but everything around it, all of life centered, we were, how far you got away from, from Jerusalem, still you knew that was the very center of your life. God was there. not clearly, a place can't contain God, but it was the, it was the expression of, 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 of the very presence of God among them, the very symbol of it. God is with us. And so we know that we have access to him. We know we can pray to him. We know that he, he comes and forgives and that he acts. We, we know that we can go to him in this place and receive from him and enjoy communion with him, the very dwelling place of God. And that's, could we put it this way, even more clear to us. Because you see, the dwelling place of God among men has never been really locational in the sense that contained by a building, but within the context of a people. And so we see the very dwelling place of God among men in the person of our Lord Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. His name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus said, don't worry about when I go away, because when I go away, the Holy Spirit will come, and he will uh, bring the very presence of the Father and me, the Son, to you, and we will dwell among you. Therefore, when the Apostle Paul could speak of Christians... Individually, he could speak to us as our very bodies, as the dwelling place of God, the very dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. For instance, in 1 Corinthians in chapter 6 and verse 19, he writes, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. For so you've been bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. In other words, in other words, you're the very dwelling place of God. Each one of us, individually, God lives within the very dwelling place of God. But Paul also puts it in the context of us together, corporately, in 1 Corinthians, in chapter three, uh, verse sixteen. He says, do you not know that you, and the you there is plural. So if you were a southerner, he would say you all actually, if you were a good southerner, he would say all 'all," y'all, which means the whole group of you. Um, And so do you not know that all y'all are God's temple all of you together, that God dwells in the midst of us and that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So all of it do we know that? Did you come into this assembly, this place, this morning Knowing that you, the very dwelling place of God, and knowing that when we all gathered in a way that's inexplicable, God dwells here. Paul writes in Ephesians, in chapter 2, this. I'm sorry, chapter 1. He writes, um, oh, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 18. He writes, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer Australians, strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built... On the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you're also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Again, to realize that we... And Paul was writing to Timothy here, writing in the context of one who was the pastor of a local congregation, a local church. Paul is writing very locally here to Timothy about these things. And so he's saying that that congregation in Ephesus, though it didn't comprise the whole church, but he could speak of that congregation in Ephesus like he could speak of this congregation in Lawrence, Kansas, and other congregations in Lawrence, Kansas, as being the very household of God the very dwelling place of God God lives among us and we're being built into a temple a place out of which worship of God flows Peter sings the same tune has the same message 1 Peter in chapter 2 we read this verse 4 As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, behold I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so there we have it, you see. We're being this very temple of God, the household of God. And always, in Scripture, when we read of the dwelling place of God among His people, there is a moral imperative. In other words, since God is here, therefore you should, right? Since God is here, therefore you should be holy, because He is holy. Since God dwells in your body, then be pure, sexually, with your body, you see. Since we are being built into this spiritual household to offer Him praise, then there shouldn't be any malice, Peter says, before that. There shouldn't be any malice or hatred among you. And he goes on to say, then also you should abstain from, from, from passions of the flesh and conduct yourselves in an honorable way in the world so that people will realize that it's God who dwells among you. That God is your God. That you belong to him I remember when I was a kid my dad, before we would go visit my grandparents and visiting them was often they just lived on the streets And uh, when I was little and, and, and we would go and he would say now remember what you say and do in grandma's house <laughs> there was a moral imperative now some of those things were rather arbitrary just to pacify my grandmother's whims but the truth is there you see we're the very dwelling place of God it's his house and all of his rules are right and good and thus you see always we're in his house the very house of God I remember when our church was young and we were still meeting at Deerfield Elementary School people would come to me and they would say when are you going to start building your church I knew what they meant they meant when are you going to build a facility but I was never going to give in to that And I would say, well, we began in June of 1988, and we became a particular church in the denomination in April of 1990. So we've been building the church for quite some time, so it's being built. Really? I haven't seen it. Well, you're looking at it. (laughs) You know, this is is the church. People now say, when's the church going to be finished? And I just roll my eyes, and I say, well, in glory. And they no, 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 no. I need all oh, the new sanctuary. I don't know when that's going to be finished. But, 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 but the church isn't going to be perfected right until then. It's, we're the very dwelling place, you see, of God. And we must never forget that. And so as Paul, as we'll see this as we work our way through this letter, as Paul is laying out how it is that we're to behave, these aren't arbitrary kinds of things. These are are points that he makes, commands that he gives, instructions and wisdom and all of that. Why? Because this is who you are. God dwells among you, the very household of God. He's your father, he's your head. He is the one who dwells among you. And not only that, it's the church, he says, of the living God. Now the word church comes from a Greek word, ekklesia, which has two parts to it. Ek means out of, ecclesia cleo means to call. And so when we speak of the church, we're, the, we're that group of people whom God has called out of the world to be his. And especially in First Timothy, when Paul uses this expression, the church, he, he doesn't simply mean or think of us as individually called out, though we are, but we're individually called out to be joined together. And so often as he speaks of church, he's speaking of the assembly of those who have been called out. And he does that, no doubt, in contrast because he has this big temple sitting over here of Diana and that's always in his mind as he's writing to to Timothy. And and, and he's saying, now now you're the ones called out and to be the very dwelling place of God. God isn't there, but God is in the midst of you. Now you're this assembly of the living God. Now that sounds a bit redundant, doesn't it? Living God? Why should we have to say living God? But if you think about it, if you've been churched a while and you've thought of that expression, you've read the Bible... That, that sort of flows naturally off our lips. And the reason it does is that God is often referred in the scripture as the true and living God. Now, why would he say living God? And the answer is because there's dead gods all over the place. There was a dead God in Ephesus, Diana. They thought she was alive. They thought she was great. But really, she wasn't at all. Because, you see, she was simply a God of someone's own making. And we have gods of our own making all over the place and, and even in our our lives. You see, when we worship, we're really saying, this is what's valuable to me. This is what determines my life. This is what, as I put it very often, defines my life or directs my life. This is what brings me delight. And, and so, so all of life is wrapped around those things that we worship. And we empower various idols to define and direct our lives. We empower them. It might be another person that we live to serve. In ways that we ought not serve them. It's contrary to the ways that we should serve God. Or it might be money or power or prestige or pleasure or position or any of those. It might be the fact that we we elevate our own country to that position. We take direction and delight there and we think that's our protection in all of that. Our military strength, our economic strength, our political strength, whatever that happens to be. We put that in the very place of God as, as the peace, the place where we worship. Because, no, 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 that's all dead. That will all eventually disappoint you. That will all always eventually not come through. You'll see at a point in time that that won't be your Savior. That can't be your salvation. That isn't really to be your Lord. That's all dead. In, In fact, the prophet Isaiah... I wish I had time to read three chapters out of Isaiah, but I don't. I'll just read one. Isaiah chapter 46. The prophet Isaiah lays out in a really very sarcastic way, idolatry. And, and if I could say this respectfully, he says that idolatry is silly. If I could even use a word that... Uh, as parents you won't allow your children to use I probably shouldn't use it but it's simply the word stupid in in a very technical way he says this is really stupid notice how he puts it in Isaiah 46 Bell. he's talking about two idols Bell bows down Nebo stoops their idols are on beasts and livestock these things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts they stoop, they bow down together they can't save the burden but themselves go into captivity in other words he's saying you have to carry these gods around think about that shouldn't they be carrying you but you are carrying them he says listen to me O house of Jacob all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me uh, from before your birth carried from the womb even to your old age I am he and to gray hairs I will carry you I have made and I will bear and I will carry and I will save in other words God saying listen I give you life they can't they can't even carry themselves around So why do you ask them for anything? Why do you depend upon them for anything? Why do you fear them at all? They can't even move. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in scales, hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god and they fall down in worship. So silly as that. A minute ago you were just carrying around in your pocket as coins and now you're falling on your face before him. After the goldsmiths has formed it into something else, they left it to carry, they lifted it to their shoulders to carry it. They said it's in its place, and it stands there. It can't move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. And God says, this is crazy. another part in Isaiah 44, he, he speaks of, of, of taking a piece of wood, a big piece of wood from a cedar tree, and he says, "One minute you use that wood." to make a fire to bake your bread. Another, you carve it into an idol and you bow down and worship it. What's with that? Better to use it to bake your bread. At least you're getting something from from that. So, God lays out the illogic, if you will, of empowering something by your own volition to be your God, making it your own God. How can that be? And he illustrates the silliness of that in First Samuel, in chapter 5, in that particular situation, uh, during the days of ancient Israel, uh, they misunderstood uh, the purpose and presence of the Ark of the Covenant, this, this place of the dwelling place of God. And they, they saw it as kind of superstitiously, as so kind of a rabbit's foot. And so they were going to take it into battle, thinking all we have to do is go into battle with this Ark of the Covenant. And we'll win. Well, they didn't, because they had no faith in God. They were displeasing to him. And so the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. And so when they captured the Ark of the Covenant, they took it into their temple, if you will, and they had a statue of their god whose name was Dagon. And so they put the Ark of the Covenant in there but uh, at the feet, really, of Dagon, and that was kind of a disrespectful thing to do to the god of the Israelites, if you will, saying, our god is better than your god's. Well, the next morning, when they got up, they went into the temple of Dagon, and they found this idol laying face down in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Well, then, do you know what they did? They propped it back up. What kind of a God is that? Then in the morning, you've got to prop him back up. You've got to put him back in his position. But the irony seemed to be lost on all the Philistines. But not on God. The next morning when they woke up, they found their idol laying at, face down before the Ark of God with its head severed and its hands severed as if to say, God is smarter than your God, stronger than your God. <laughs> and then, rather than saying, we should worship the God of Israel, they said, we need to get rid of this God of Israel, because he keeps destroying our gods. And so they did, they got rid of the Ark of the Covenant, rather than bowing down themselves. an echo of the words of Jesus, men love darkness rather than light. the silliness of it all he says you know we're the church of the living God he's alive which means he hears he sees, he knows he speaks, he acts he's in charge of all of history his arm, as the scripture says, is not too short that he cannot save. Uh, and, and so he's the true and, and living God. And that's to affect our behavior as well, to know that he's the true and living God, that we can, we can really go to him and he, and he saves. In fact, it was Darius, the, the Babylonian, who, who in the days of, of Daniel uh, realized the power of God. And, and he... Uh, rightly puts it like this verse 25 of Daniel chapter 6 then King Darius wrote to all the people nations and languages that dwell in the earth peace be multiplied to you I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel for he is the living God he's the real one he's the one who can keep people out of the fire if you will He's the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall not be, never be destroyed, and his dominion shall, shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. He says, this is the true and living God. He can stop lions from eating this one we threw in there. So he's the one that you are to worship. Remember when David was about to fight Goliath. David was kind of astounded that all this was going on, that this, this giant was saying all these horrible things about God and his people. And essentially, David said, doesn't he know that our God is the living God? In other words, our God hears what he's saying. How can he say these things? For our God will act because he hears and he knows that he will, in fact, act. And so, the sense in which Paul writes this letter saying, I want you to know how to conduct yourselves because you're the household of God, you're His family, He dwells among you, and He sees and hears and knows and acts. He's the living God. And as I was poring over this and thinking it through and praying it through this morning and walking around this place, I thought, Is that how I come here, knowing that He's the living God? Is that how I pray? When I pray, do I really pray, not just the mouth words, but know that God hears and responds. When, when, when I sing, am I really singing, realizing that God is here, not over there, not up there, not out there, but here? Do I sing like that? When, when, when I read, when I listen, am I listening, knowing that it's God who is here and speaking when I live my life, when I'm out of here do I, do I live that way, is there any evidence at all that I believe that I'm the very dwelling of God that God lives within me and among me do, do, do I really know that he's the true and living God when, when I face temptation, when I come up against certain fears when, when, when I fear ang- feel anger kind of rise up within me or, or disappointment or, or discouragement or any of that, how is it that I realize that God is here. And how does that change the way that I conduct myself, the way that I behave, knowing that he really is here? And so Paul says, I'm going to write this letter to you, Timothy, so so the church will know how it is that they're to behave knowing that they're the very household of God, that he's the head, that he's their father, that they are his dwelling place, that he's alive. And also that they realize that they are a pillar and buttress of the truth. In other words, here's what they're to do. They're to always support and uphold the truth. That's what they do as the church. They're the ones in all of this world who say, this is truth, and we're going to uphold this, we're going to live this, we're going to die for this, because this can't be changed. This must manifest itself. And again, of course, Paul is making reference to this, this big temple that's, that's held up by all of these columns and all of these pillars and these buttresses and everything that keeps up this, this temple. He says, no, 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 you are that. You uphold the truth of God. Sadly, in the history of the church, we haven't always done a good job of that. There's church. There's that which calls itself church. That no longer believes in the authority of scripture. That no longer believes in the deity of Christ. no longer believes in the miracles that Jesus did. That no longer believes in the resurrection of Jesus. That no longer believes in the necessity of, of needing to be born again by the Holy Spirit in order to come to faith. That no longer believes that Jesus is ruling and reigning, no longer believes that he's returning, no longer believes that all is to be for his glory. In fact, even as Paul writes to Timothy, he warns him over and over and over again of the false teaching that must exist even at that time in the church of Ephesus and how he's to combat that. And he writes, and so the word comes to us as the church of Jesus. Don't look out there, look in here and make certain that we are pillars and buttresses of the truth. And so when he says, this is how I want you to conduct yourself, he's telling us that because of of who we are and what we're to do. We're the household of God, who is the true and living God, and we are to be a pillar and a buttress of the truth. And what is that truth? Well, he goes on to lay it out. It's more, who is that truth? He says, the mystery of godliness is great. There was a chant in, in ancient Ephesus, and that chant always was, great is the goddess Artemis. Great is the goddess Diana. And Paul writes, no, 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 no. Great is the mystery of godliness. Well, well, what is that godliness, that which is pleasing to God? What is that godliness, that which is right? What is that godliness, that which is truth? And he says, well, it's not so much what but who Jesus is great he was manifested in the flesh he writes his incarnation real God with us God in the flesh he was vindicated by the spirit that is the Holy Spirit attested to Jesus that yes he truly is the son of God he did it at Jesus' baptism he did it in the, in the sense of all the miracles of Jesus as the spirit was present he did it when he exercised demons out of demon-possessed people, and people had said, ah, that comes by the Spirit of the living God. He did it at the resurrection of Jesus. He was raised from the dead and the Holy Holy Spirit announced at that point in time that everything that Jesus said, everything that Jesus did was true and reliable, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels. In other words, that that this this proclamation, this this, this declaration of, of who Jesus is, His presentation was made known not only on earth but in the unseen world as well. He was seen by angels. We know that. He was announced by angels to shepherds. We know that even Jesus was attended by angels after his temptation. He was attended by angels at the Garden of Gethsemane. He, he, was, he, was, he was announced by angels at the tomb saying, Who do you seek? He's not here. He's risen. He was, they were there, angels, announcing the ascension of Jesus. Don't worry, he's going to come back in the same way that he left. Seen by angels proclaimed among the nations. Jesus gave that great commission to win all the world. And on the day of Pentecost, the scripture said there were men there from every nation under heaven. And we saw that the proclamation going through the early church in the book of Acts, that more were added to their number every day because they believed on him. And there was, they believed in, on him in the world and taken up in glory, meaning that glorified to rule and reign. We must never... Lose that truth. We live to uphold that truth that He has come and lived and died and risen for us that we might have life. We must never lose that truth that he was vindicated by the Holy Spirit, meaning that it's the Holy Spirit who communicates to us, who convinces us all that is true of Jesus, is true and reliable, seen by angels. We are to proclaim him throughout the world that others may believe upon him as we have believed upon him. And he's been taken up into glory, knowing that even now he rules and reigns. This supper he gave to us to see it, to proclaim it, to receive it the night that he was betrayed the scripture said he took bread and after giving thanks he broke it, he gave this to his disciples and he said this is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me and in the same way he took the cup and again after giving thanks he gave this to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me and thus we do. And as we do, we proclaim the Lord's death, meaning we proclaim his incarnation and his life and his death. Until he comes, thus we proclaim that he's been raised and taken up into glory where he rules and reigns. This is our mission. To uphold this, to keep this gospel that's been entrusted to us. To live it out and to proclaim it to the world. So as we study this letter of First Timothy, what we'll find is everything that we're to do and to be flows out of the fact that we're his household. His very dwelling place. He who is the living God. So that we can be a pillar and a buttress of this truth. Let's pray, Father. Pray for me, for us. That we would know that. That we'd know how precious, how valuable, how worthy this truth is. That it means everything. and Father, we must not Allow any of it to slip by the wayside, but cling all, cling to all of it. So, Father, even on this day, I pray for us that you would convince us more deeply than ever before of the truth of Jesus, this mystery of godliness, this one who's come to reveal that which is true. And I pray that we grab hold of this truth, grab hold of him more tightly than ever before, that we may cling to it in such a way that It will never be diminished among us. We will uphold it and live it and proclaim it. So Lord Jesus, I pray that you would meet us here. You said this is your body, your blood. So I pray, God, that you would take this bread and this juice and set it aside, set it apart in such a way that we would know that Jesus is here with us. That we are the very dwelling place of God. So convinced of that as we come a faith nurtured and deepened and strengthened. And we go from this place where we should uphold this truth always. God, this we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I remind you this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, it's the table of the Lord. He invites to all those who understand that coming into this household is not on the basis of our own goodness and merit, but who understand themselves to be sinners in the sight of God without hope except in His sovereign mercy, and to receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus as He's offered to us in the Gospel, the Savior of, the Savior of sinners, and who desire to live as those we're part of this household of God. The true and living God. And to live worthy of Christ. That's true for you. I invite you to come. These two sections. Come down these aisle to my left. This aisle to my left. These two. Down this aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread. Dip it in the cup. And as you go, as you do, remind yourself, yes, this mystery is great. But this mystery is Christ. Please come.